Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Today we study verses 27 to 30. Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 27. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Mark writes, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. May God be praised through the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. Father, we thank you for this great confession. And we thank you that Jesus reveals himself to sinners, that they through faith may be saved. May we also see him as he is, see him as Lord and Christ, that we through faith may be saved by him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In the early hours of June 5th, 1944, General Dwight David Eisenhower faced a momentous decision. It had been four years since the Allied forces had set foot on the continent of Western Europe after Germany's crushing defeat of Britain and France in 1940. And since then, the brunt of the fighting in World War II had fallen to the Russians, who had turned the tide in the east. In the west, America and the Allies had only nipped at the edges of the Third Reich, but the time had come, and Eisenhower knew it, the time was overdue for a major landing of uh, Allied troops, American and British troops, on the coast of France. He knew it was urgent. There was a critical timetable pressing. The problem was he'd had to postpone the landing several times because of the weather. And sure enough, the weather predictors announced there was a severe storm coming, and that would make it impossible for the landing craft to work, the airplanes to fly. The whole thing couldn't operate. So on June 4th, he postponed it. On June 5th, he postponed it again. And he knew if he postponed it on June 6th, that was the next day, then the tides would be out. He'd have to wait two more weeks. During that time, the enemy would almost certainly figure out what's going on, and they would be made ready. He felt the need for a decision. And on June 5th, the weathermen came back to him and said, you know, General, there's an opportunity. There might be a change of the weather tomorrow on June 6th. And Eisenhower decided he needed to take the risk. He needed, as it were, to roll the dice. And he he gave the order for the D-Day landings. Today we now know them as June 6th, 1944. But what an uncertain thing it was that night when Eisenhower very movingly went and visited the troops of the 101st airborne as they were launching themselves in the sky over the English Channel. Well, Mark's gospel records another time of decision in the earthly ministry of Jesus. Mark has been telling the story of Jesus' public ministry in Galilee, beginning with his declaration that in his coming the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, Mark 1.15. And chapters 1 to 6 show Jesus preaching the word of God, performing miracles of healing and deliverance. He's gathering and instructing and deploying his disciples. And, And the crowds at times are surging around Jesus, but the religious authorities are also hardening their opposition. In fact, they already were hatching their plots to put him to death. And we've observed how Jesus wanted to avoid a premature confrontation. There was a timetable and it wasn't yet time. 
And Mark's been laboring to show us also that he fulfilled the great prophecy of Isaiah 35 by taking his disciples out of the Jewish lands. They went into the lands of the Gentiles. They went to Tyre and Sidon. They came, it was like an eight-month journey. They came all the way back down across Galilee to the Decapolis. And and this was a way of fulfilling the prophecy of the, the, the light shining in Lebanon, the grace of God in the land of the Gentiles. But now the divine timetable was pressing for the culmination of Jesus' earthly ministry. Unknown to his disciples, he had an appointment in Jerusalem that coming Passover where he would be sacrificed on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And here was an event infinitely more momentous than the Allied landings in June 1944. And Jesus needed to get started, and yet before beginning the 100-mile journey towards their destination, he pulls his disciples aside one more time. He takes them back outside of Judea, and he challenges them with the question at the heart of Mark's gospel. He asks them, who do you say that I am? Now, it seems a little surprising that by this point in Mark's narrative, the disciples didn't know how to answer that question. They had not come to grips with the identity of the man they'd been following for maybe two years. They had experienced his remarkable authority. We think in chapter 1 when Jesus sovereignly called Peter and Andrew from the lakes, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And we read immediately they left their nets and they followed him so they'd experienced his authority. And it seems startling that they would leave their jobs and homes to follow this rabbi without perceiving clearly who he was. There must have been times when when they thought about it. What am I doing with my life? I'm I'm not even sure what's going on here with him. But I've left everything and I'm following him. Shouldn't I go back to my responsible life? I'm, I'm sure they had family members. We've had family members come to us and say, what are you doing? Who's this person that you've left everything and you're following him? And they would, have, they would have asked him, can you explain to us who is this man who you've left everything to go and follow him? But the disciples could not clearly give an answer. Twice they themselves have said, who is this? Matthew 4, Mark 4, verse 4 and 6, verse 51. And yet in passage after passage, we read of Jesus' astonishing deeds, his remarkable teaching, and it seems that this is holding the 12 disciples into the gravity of his orbit. Well, now we come to what is the watershed moment of Jesus' earthly ministry. Before going to Jerusalem, he draws his disciples away in a retreat once again in order to press upon them the vital question. Verse 27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, withdrawing them one more time for the solemn purpose of bringing them to an awakening of faith. Now, that Jesus makes this effort is so important. And the fact that he he engages in this shows that he calls for more than a spiritual enthusiasm. Um, But they had a spiritual enthusiasm, and Jesus was not content with that. If all you have in your Christianity is is that you're caught up in the emotions of of the worship and and the fellowship, then Jesus is not content with that. He's not content with the mere social connection. I've got some friends who are Christians. I go there. I'm treated nicely. He is not content with that. No, the central purpose for which Mark wrote his gospel 
And the reason for which Jesus pulls these disciples aside is because the New Testament message over and over and again is that salvation requires faith in Jesus Christ. We must believe in him. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. In Acts 16.31, the Philippian jailer, he's frightened by the earthquake. He turns to the apostle Paul, What must I do? And Paul gives the answer of the New Testament, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, saving faith calls for a commitment of our lives to Jesus based on belief in his person and work. But first, there must be the knowledge of who he is, what he is. It's this basic question that Jesus presses upon them. Who do you say that I am? This is the purpose of Mark's gospel. Now, with his usual skill and insight, before Jesus brings this question about their personal belief... He asks them about what the crowds are saying. Verse 27, who do the people say that I am? And they answered him, verse 28, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. Now we've read that uh, John the Baptist had recently been wickedly put to death by Herod Antipas, and yet a strong impression still existed from this last prophetic figure of the Old Testament. This is a powerful personality, and, and the impact of John went on beyond his death. In fact, Herod himself, when the news was brought to him about the astonishing reports of Jesus, Herod himself said, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. Mark 6, verse 16. Now this shows there was a clear connection between the ministry of John the Baptist and the subsequent ministry of Jesus Christ. There had been centuries of prophetic silence, but now the word of the Lord is being heard in a living voice. And John confronted the people with the need to repent of their sins, and so did Jesus. Repent and believe the gospel. Now there's differences between them. Uh, For instance, Jesus did not embrace John's wilderness life of austerity. But from the perspective of Herod and clearly many other people, it seemed very clear that Jesus and John the Baptist were cut from the same cloth. Who do the people say that I am? The disciples' first answer is, well, the thing we hear the most is John the Baptist. But there's another view. Another suggestion is that it's Elijah, the Old Testament prophet Elijah, that great figure from the Old Testament. Now, great as Elijah is, I wouldn't pick him as the greatest of Old Testament heroes. Abraham would be greater, Moses, David. But the thing about Elijah is that he was translated out of this world without dying. That's what's going on here. Remember in 2 Kings 2, you, you should read, the, listen to Reverend Brannigan's sermons on this. Uh, Elijah goes up on a chariot of fire, and, and so the idea was he's coming back. In fact, Malachi 4 verse 5 says that there's going to be an Elijah-like figure who comes before salvation. A third opinion was held that Jesus was one of the prophets. Now, that, that's not just he is a prophet. He's one of the prophets. He's one of the big-time prophets. In fact, Matthew's version is going to say Jeremiah. There's a very strong a typology between Jeremiah and Jesus. But they're saying that this is a great compliment. He, he sounds like Isaiah. That's a big name. He's like Jeremiah. He's one of the prophets. That's the popular imagination. Put him on a par with the most noble figures of biblical history. 
Now, the appraisals that Jesus was John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets all describe, notice this, all three of those are people who were given a preparatory role in the work of God for salvation. And, but for this reason, not to mention the fact that Jesus is God, he is the unique son of God, but for this reason, all of these very laudatory opinions fall short of the truth. For a preacher today to be compared to Elijah or John the Baptist or Jeremiah, what an accolade that would be, probably undeserved. In Jesus' case, though, it's almost an insult. These fall short, dreadfully short of the mark. Jesus did not come to perform a preparatory work of salvation, but the culminating work of salvation. He is the Savior to whom the prophets pointed. Jesus must not be ranked among the prototypes of the spiritual giants of the Bible. No, he is the archetype. They gain their identity from him. They rest in his shadow humbly. And so no doubt these appraisals were, were meant to make a high esteem of Jesus. It's an honor and a compliment. They fail to distinguish his unique stature. What we've seen and read from Jesus in Mark's gospel demands an entirely different category altogether. He cannot be compared to anyone else. Why? Because he is God's only son and he is the world's only savior. Daniel Aiken's right when he says, they honor him but misrepresent him. They applaud him but deny who he really is. And so it goes today, isn't it true? People have all kinds of opinions about Jesus and they're almost all good. I mean, who's going to make a bad comment other than, of course, the, the way they take his name in vain. But when they ask about Jesus, everybody's going to say, oh, I mean, Jesus, I mean, He's, he's the greatest moral teacher, the greatest ethical example. Why, why, he's right up there with Gandhi or someone like that, the people will say. But you see, whenever the world raises its own opinion about Jesus, it's always going to be limited by the world's own moral, moral dwarfishness, our spiritual uh, dwarfishness. We're going to fail to note the uniqueness by which he must be worshipped as Lord and God. J.C. Ryle comments, few thoroughly realize that he is very God, the one mediator, the one high priest, the one source of life and peace. And notice that Jesus will not accept any such views. If you're saying, well, you know, I, I have nice thoughts about Jesus. No, no you, have, you have unbelieving thoughts of Jesus unless you acknowledge him in the way the Bible teaches, as we soon will see from the lips of Peter. Now let me say, if Jesus had come to earth and he'd gone to the cross and died for our sins without bringing these original disciples of faith, we'd still have a gospel. You could still be saved by believing in Jesus, whether or not these disciples believed in him or not. But, but notice his determination. It's so important. Jesus had not come merely to give the opportunity for salvation. He came to save. He came to save his people. And among his people are these disciples, and he will save them. I, I love in John's gospel, where over and over Jesus speaks of those whom the Father has given me. I shall lose none of them. I shall raise them up on the last day. For him, it is essential that his people be saved. Not to mention that he has will that these men are going to be his, his apostles. All of them except a, <coughs> excuse me, 
I just sneeze coming. Uh, all of them accepting Judas Iscariot. His destiny lay in a different direction. Jesus had a purpose. These were going to be his apostolic witnesses. And so that Jesus, it's not enough for him to give the opportunity of salvation. No, the Redeemer redeems and these people are going to be saved. And so Jesus takes them away. Yet again, it's, the, the clock is ticking, but he's going to pull them out again. He's going to press them to state their belief. He, he responds then, not by commenting on the various opinions, but by pressing the question on them personally. He asks them, but who do you say? that I am. And my friends, if you were asked to pick a single verse on which the whole of the gospel of Mark turns, take your finger and put it on Mark 8:29. It's the very center of the gospel of Mark. This is the fulcrum on which it turns. This is the hinge of this whole book. Who do you say that I am? And then the, 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 what happens afterwards. I want to point out, this is a turning point. And, and what is it that happened? Was this, does Mark 8.29 record some great politician who announces a new program of, pros, of prosperity and peace? Is, is this a, a general who wins a, a victory on some hardened battle plane? Is it a scientific technological breakthrough that's going to change the world. No, no. The thing on which the gospel turns, the thing that matters most, that changes all things, is the profession of faith, the confession of faith in Jesus Christ. That's what matters most in our world. This is what's of most significance to God. This is what has the greatest eternal impact. A simple man called by Jesus confessed faith in him as Savior and Lord. Who do you say that I am, Jesus demanded. And Peter answered, you are the Christ. That was Peter's answer. You are the Christ. Church history refers to this as the great confession. It's great for two reasons. It's actually the first time. This is the first confession of faith in Jesus that is received as such by him. It's also great because of the content. It's great today for that same reason. When anyone makes the same confession, this is the great truth by which sinners are brought to salvation. Well, when Peter professed Jesus as the Christ, he meant that Jesus is a long-promised Messiah of God's people. It's helpful to know that Christ is not Jesus' last name, it's his office. It, it, it is Jesus the Christ is what's really meant. The Greek word Christos translates the Hebrew word Meshuach, Messiah. Meshuach is the noun form of the verb to anoint. To say that you are the Christ is you are the anointed one. That's literally what Peter's saying. You're the one. You're the anointed one promised. And there were three offices in the Old Testament that were anointed for service to God. The prophet, the priest, and the king. And Peter saying, you're, you're the one. All of that is found in you. You're the one who fulfills it all. You are the appointed anointed one. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. I like how Michael Green puts it. Like the priest, only perfectly, Jesus brought people back to God. Like the prophet, only perfectly, Jesus showed people what God was like. And like the king, only perfectly, Jesus exercised God's rule over God's people while uniquely serving as a servant of the Lord. Jesus is the true prophet, the true priest, the true king. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ. 
Now, scholars wonder why Mark does not include the longer version that's given in the Matthew 16 version, where Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's how. That's the longer formula in Matthew's gospel. By the way, I think it's most likely that Mark came first. Matthew's kind of expanding on Mark a little bit. Why didn't Mark conclude the whole thing? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, it's not because he doesn't believe it. It's not because he wants to undermine faith in Jesus as the Son of God. He has abundantly presented the deity of Jesus. As God's son, he, he, Jesus exercised a prerogative of forgiving sins. Who but God can forgive sins? Jesus then does it. He stands on the boat. He commands the winds and the waves. He's the creator Lord. You know, the deity of Christ is all through Mark's gospel. We often hear the formula, son of man. That's a title suffused with deity. In fact, in the very first verse of the book, he describes Jesus as the son of God. Mark is not downplaying Jesus' identity as son of God. What he's doing is he's focusing on us on this claim. He's the anointed one. He is the Christ. He puts a spotlight on Jesus as the promised Messiah whom God would provide and empower to deliver his people. Now, undoubtedly, in the popular mind of the time, it was the kingly office that most potently occupied the hope of Israel. And for good reason. You think of, for instance, Isaiah 9. The promise of the Messiah. For to us a child is given, to us a son is born, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, on the throne of David and over his kingdom. He shall reign to establishment and uphold it with justice and righteousness, both now and forevermore. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 focuses on the kingly office of the Messiah. Jeremiah foretold that God would raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And so no doubt, not only in the popular mind, but in Peter's mind, and this will play out as the gospel goes on, it's primarily the Messiah as the promised king. And in that time, the idea of justice and righteousness primarily meant that the Messiah come and he would kick out the Romans. That's what the popular belief was. We want the Messiah. By the way, this, this, this is exactly what's being hailed on, the, on, on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. Come on, conquer now, kick the Romans out, make us the great imperial power of the earth. That's the popular view of the coming of the Messiah. You see this in the piety of the time. There's a book called The Psalms of Solomon, maybe a first century B.C. non-canonical book. And and here's the pious hope of that time. O Lord, raise up their king, the son of David, that he may reign over Israel, thy servant. Now, what what do they want then? Gird him with strength that he might shatter unrighteous rulers, that he may purge Jerusalem from nations that trample her to destruction. Lord, send the Messiah, make him a Davidic king, and then use him to conquer the Romans. That's essentially the, 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 the way the thinking was. And what they failed to realize was that before Jesus, the Messianic king, would wear the crown, he first must bear the cross. That's why the next passage, immediately following, and we'll see it, Lord willing, in our next sermon, Jesus insists on an understanding that the Messiah came first to die for our sins. First he bears the cross, and then he wears the crown. And Peter was right in saying, you're the anointed one. 
You are the Christ. So long as he realized that message given by the angel to Mary and Joseph about the baby, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will deliver his people from their sins. From their sins. Now, it's almost certain that the reason Jesus responds to Peter's confession of faith with a gag order, it's a little surprising, First thing he tells them is don't tell anybody. Why? Because of the popular misunderstanding. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, let me just point out that after Jesus has died, after he's risen from the grave, that instruction is going to change dramatically. These same disciples, now apostles, will be told, you will be my witnesses from Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth, but only after they'd gotten the message straight. And and that had to be taught by the actual experience of what was going to come. Uh, By that time, the disciples will understand, uh, uh, the New Testament way of saying it, is that the Messiah comes in two stages. Hebrews 9.28 says, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Do you realize that the primary meaning of the primary work of the first coming of Jesus was to deal with our sin? That's, that's the great enemy. Do you realize the great enemy that threatens you is not some political enemy. It's not what's happening in the elections. It's not your business rivals. No, it, it's, it's the judgment of God upon your sin. And so he came first to die for our sins. He comes second to bring in that everlasting reign his eternal kingship. He will sit on the throne of the final judgment. He will separate the sheep from the goats. Well, it's primarily because this teaching regarding the Christ was so poorly understood and because Jesus is not yet ready to provoke the final confrontation that he commands them to remain silent about him. R.T. France explains the popular enthusiasm for Jesus and the hope that he might be persuaded to take a more political role as a leader of a Jewish uprising made it unwise for this confession to be publicized. It reminds us, by the way, that while we certainly care about elections, we have them going, what a year it's going to be. It's going to be very interesting. We care about civil affairs. The Christian church realizes the primary message we give is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we avoid letting our entanglement and other pursuits get in the way of our gospel message. Jesus Christ died for your sins. Well, let's conclude, considering this, this is a watershed moment in Mark's gospel. So let's make three reflections of what we're seeing here because Peter is a model inevitably for our faith. And there's three things for us to notice. First of them is the context in which Jesus demands the confession of of our faith. What's the context for this whole episode? Well, we see it in verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, Mark's going to make us, so does Matthew. There's an emphasis made on Caesarea Philippi. It's about 25 miles due north of Lake Galilee. At the feet of Mount Hermon was this city, a fairly recent city. Its name was Peneus. It was a pagan city, because, and there was a grotto with a shrine to the Greek false god Pan. But sometimes earlier, another one of Herod the Great's sons, this one is Herod Philip, was made a tetrarch. Caesar dealt with the Herods by parceling the land. And Galilee went to Herod Antipas, and the northern area went to Philip the Tetrarch, Herod Philip. 
And he gave this region, the northern, most northern part of the, of the lands of Israel, to Philip. And, and Philip, he wanted to honor. He, know, he knows the hand that feeds him. And so he invests in this city. It's going to be his capital city, and he's going to rename it. He gives it the name Caesarea Philippi, Caesar's name and his name. And, and you see which one came first. He's paying homage to Augustus Caesar. Now, why does Jesus bring his disciples this far north? We're told he was in the villages. They weren't in the city, but there's the city on the mountain. They're, it's up looking at it. What is it? It's the emblem of the idols of the world. It's the emblem of all the things that are glorified in the world. It's the emblem of that worldview, the motto of which is enshrined of the name of the very city. That motto is that Caesar is Lord. That's the context in which Jesus called for the faith of his disciples, and it is the context in which he calls for it still. We are living in a culture in the popular mind in which salvation comes from Caesar. That's why elections are so all-important. They're not unimportant, but they're all-important because it's government programs that gives us salvation. If not that, it's technological advance. If not that, it's some other human achievement. Most people worship pleasure or fame or the almighty dollar, seeking deliverance and meaning in the glittering promises of a world in rebellion to God. It cannot be coincidence that Jesus brings his disciples into this context. There before them is the city that most emblemizes Caesar is Lord. And he says, what, who do you say that I am? And God's word likewise challenges us to renounce the idols and the false gospels of a deceiving, manipulating world and to offer our faith instead, decidedly instead, not just incidentally instead, decidedly instead, we say, no, Caesar, you are not Lord. No, world, we do not look to you for salvation. Jesus, you are the Christ. That's the context of the Christian confession. And we're reminded that we cannot confess Jesus as Lord and then give our hearts to the powers of the age. Listen to John the Apostle. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father but from the world. 1 John two fifteen to 16. And so with that demand in mind, the context into which Jesus brings his disciples and he challenges them to declare their allegiance, to declare their understanding and their faith, indicates that mean if we say to him, you are the Christ, we must say to the world, you are not. You owe world, you owe Caesar, you owe Hollywood, you owe Madison Avenue, you are not my Savior or my Lord. That's the context of the confession of faith. Secondly, note the circumstances in which Jesus called for his disciples' faith. It's, it's, it's not after his exaltation, it's before his exaltation. It's while he's devoid of earthly glory, earthly power. It's while Jesus is poor in the things of the world and is despised, increasingly despised, by the powers of the age that he calls for faith in him. Now, there's great numbers of people who are consumers of Jesus' supernatural goods and services, but very few of them will receive him as Lord and Christ. 
And these circumstances are going to get worse when they get to Jerusalem. That's where Jesus is about to start taking them. And when they get them, what's going to happen? He's going to be arrested and there's going to be this sham mocking trial. They're going to cruelly put him to death on the the cross. And there'll be the insinuation that if what they did to the master, they will do to his servants. In fact, the circumstances are so onerous that it's only because Jesus prayed for him that Peter, who was on the very brink, denying Jesus three times, it was only by Jesus' prayerful intervention that Peter was saved. But for now, in the context, in the, in the, in, in, in the, the circumstances of official disdain towards Jesus, the contempt of the religious authorities, Peter boldly declares, you are the Christ. And these circumstances of cultural disapproval, looming persecution, are also the circumstances in which we must profess faith in Jesus. Listen to J.C. Ryle. We too must be ready to confess Christ even as Peter did. We shall never find our master and his doctrine to be popular. That is absolutely true. We must be prepared to confess him, Ryle said, with few on our side and many against us. But let us take courage and walk in Peter's steps, and we shall not fail of receiving Peter's reward. Well, the primary purpose for which Mark wrote this gospel was to put us in Peter's shoes and ask us the question Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am, so that we might make our profession of faith? And the same could be true for the rest of the New Testament, certainly the other gospels. Listen to John as he concludes his gospel. John 20, 31. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, given the decisive role of faith in Jesus and gaining salvation for our sins, let us thirdly note the calculation of Peter's confession of faith. First, the context. Second, the circumstances. But then the calculation of his confession of faith. We noted earlier the difficulties pressing on the mind of General Dwight Eisenhower on June 5th. That's a big deal. He's the commander of the Allied forces. He's got to decide whether to go or no go. And and he knew he was taking a chance. He was entertaining a risk. He's sending the army with no circumstance, no no certainty about the weather. Will the landing craft work? What will happen to the parachutes in in the rain? But he he took a leap of faith. And I want to say that that is not the kind of calculation that Peter made or that you and I made in believing in Jesus Christ and telling him he is the Christ. No, we calculate based on the conclusive evidence of the word of God, the ancient word of God confirmed in our experience of him. We are not rolling the dice. We are not taking a blind leap of faith. Notice in verse 27, Mark says, it was on the way that Jesus pressed this upon his disciples Who do you say that I am? You see, it was in the context of the discipleship. They were in his presence. They were following him. They'd witnessed his miracles. They'd heard the teaching of his word. That's what enabled them to say. It wasn't a risk. It wasn't a chance. It was a conviction. It was a calculation of truth. You are the Christ. And the same comes to us. How? Through the word of God. 
through the reading of the word of God and our prayer with the Lord, we are on the way with him and we consider the claims and proofs of the word of God and we do not take a chance on Jesus. We do not roll the dice on salvation. We say with conviction by the calculation of the word of God that you are the Christ. Listen to Sinclair Ferguson. He says to you, you do not need more information than Mark has already given by this point in his gospel for you to begin to confess. Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life. He clearly is the one in whom the prophecies of the Old Testament have reached their fulfillment. His words and works express the authority of God himself. He is the one. He is the Messiah. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. He is the only Savior. And you're not to take a leap. You're to make the calculation of faith by the conviction that comes from God's word. That's what we do through the testimony of God's word and on the way as we hear his voice and consider his person and work that we confess with Peter, oh Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You're the promised savior. And despite our context in an idolatrous, unbelieving world, yes, in the, in the circumstances of ridicule and opposition, we calculate the truth of Jesus' claims through his words and his works, we confess to him, you, Jesus, are the Christ. And when we do, we find the Savior of our souls. My Father, we thank you for this very direct account of these events in the life of Jesus and his disciples. Lord, we thank you that Jesus doesn't stand content just to throw salvation out there and see who takes it. No, he saves. And we, we who believe, Lord, thank you that Jesus has brought us a saving faith. And we pray for others who, who hear your word, who hear my voice in preaching your word. Would you grant them that conviction of faith, the calculation that comes from the word of God, that they would say, you know, that's actually true. Jesus is the Christ. And Lord, I pray that all who come to that conviction, conviction that they would profess it boldly before you and before the world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.